welcome to rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And in our second season, we are focusing on rhetoric and religion. Today, we discuss the power and the mystery of hagiography. But first, let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Cui amat periculum in illo perubit. Uh, Tim, what is hagiography? Hagiography, from the ancient Greek, refers to holy writing. The particular kind of holy writing is what in English is often called the lives of the saints. It represents a rather large corpus of texts written by the faithful of various religions, including Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. Hagiographies recount what made their subjects worthy of adulation or sainthood, including such things as martyrdom or evidence of miracles. A contemporary secular use of the term refers to uncritical histories and biographies of people in support of what might be called hero worship. Now, Tim, that sounds like epideictic rhetoric, a topic we covered in our first season, Uh, but epideictic rhetoric is more about praising and blaming, but hagiography seems to be about just the praising, right? You got that right. Mm. Now, Tim, you said that hagiography is found in all sorts of religions, but I noticed you left a few religions out, uh, primarily snake handling, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Satan worshippers. I don't don't know that the snake handlers have saints. Uh, Well, you've never met my great-grandpappy, have you? (laughs) All right. So while hagiography is generally associated with Christianity, uh, it's primarily uh, associated with Christianity, is it not? That's true. It's a primarily Christian type of rhetoric that arose with Christ and his apostles. Initially, there were two forms. The official shorthand records of a martyr's trial, later transcribed and deposited in an archive. Uh, These were produced around the second and third century of the current era. Uh, The other was the eyewitness descriptions of the arrest, trial, and execution of Christian martyrs. Mm. Later in the fourth and fifth centuries, they focused on wise sayings of hermits in Egypt, which is not the same as Egyptian hermits. You know, Tim, I thought you said Hermes there at first. Uh, and as our longtime listeners know, that Hermes is the uh, Greek god of oratory. But you know what else is the uh, Greek god of? What? Uh, petty thief. Petty thievery, oh, okay. which is also a hobby of mine. Uh, yeah. Stealing office supplies. <laughs> right. uh, you you got you know, you to make ends meet where you can. Uh, I, I don't need them. I just enjoy the thrill of stealing notepads. Uh, as you may recall in our discussion of St. Augustine, one of the fathers of the church, he too used to like to do things like that. Steal notepads? Uh, just steal for the thrill. Oh, yeah. How about that? I guess I have uh, friends in high places? Indeed. All right. So when we're talking about these Egyptian hermits, uh, when they wrote, when people wrote about them, uh, they addressed their lands, their family, their upbringing, their education— uh, the adoption of their hermetic life and the troubles and burdens burdens of such a life. Uh, uh, when people wrote about these hermits, uh, they also wrote about their struggles with uh, against temptation. I'll bet they had demonic visions. I, every day. Every day. If they're anything like me, every day. Uh, <laughs> finding greater solitude, which seems to make sense for a hermit. Uh, escaping their fans or groupies. Or disciples or prep pilgrims. Yeah, tomato, tomato. Uh, The healing miracles that they perform, the exorcism of demons, the gift of prophecy, and the prediction of their their death. And even uh, later hagiographies 
started including miracles performed by the people after their death. And that's amazing. That is amazing. Uh, and to prove that that's actually can be done, I have arranged uh, to perform a miracle after my death. What what would that miracle be? I'm going to make my debt go away. <laughs> right? Somebody else will have to pay for it, I think, but not me. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, these topics, these constitutive elements of the writing of these Egyptian hermits became the blueprint of sorts for uh, all other hagiographies. Very cool. So uh, you mentioned shrines. Back to shrines for a bit, Dave. I know you're an inveterate uh, visitor to all manner of museums and roadside attractions, but have you ever visited a shrine? You know, Tim, I don't know why you need to bring up that I uh, have a backbone and a spine. Uh, but I have been to a few uh, uh, shrine-like places. I've been to the Pencil Sharpener Museum in Ohio. Mm-hmm. I've seen the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. Uh, uh-huh. Now, some people in Kansas say they have the biggest ball of twine, but that's wrapped by many, many people. The one in Darwin, oh. Minnesota, is wrapped by one dude. Right? That 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 is amazing. That is amazing. And I've also been to the world's largest small electric appliance museum. Shout out to all my friends in Diamond, Missouri. The jewel I of like that. South, uh, southwest Missouri. I like that largest small electric. It's a, kind of an oxymoron there. It is. Abs- it is it's just amazing. I, I can't tell you enough about it. But anyway, uh, have you been to any shrines, Tim? I have. I've visited multiple, <clears throat> including St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City, and most memorable of all, <clears throat> excuse me, the Basilica of St. Anne de Beaupre in Quebec, Canada. You know, I'm no judge, Tim, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and say the world's largest small electric appliance museum uh, is much better than all those places combined. But what made that last one so memorable, Tim? Uh, I'll tell you. What made it so memorable was the fact that I and the rest of my family, except my mother, went up a stone staircase on our knees while saying the rosary in hopes of a miracle to cure my mother's heart disease. Mm. And so uh, it apparently did not work, but uh, the second heart operation that included giving her an artificial mitral valve did solve the problem. So you're saying, Tim, that uh, after our heroic intake of cheeseburgers, uh, prayer is not the answer? Well, again, it, it, where you made the prayers might matter. Mm. Uh, we might be praying in the wrong church. Oh, that could be, right? Yeah. If you pick the wrong church, you're making somebody angry somewhere. But... Uh, so all these places, right? They're actually pretty good, impressive places, and a lot of people try to go there. Uh, these basilicas are very popular destinations for people on these pilgrimages. Absolutely. Indeed, they have been for centuries. Mm-hmm. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales takes place among a group of pilgrims headed to the shrine of St. Thomas a Becket in Canterbury, England. That's a sentence I don't think I will ever say in my entire life. <laughs> uh, but into, in addition to memorializing a saint, uh, a saint that's worth emulating, uh, hagiography can also serve to establish some sort of destination for pilgrims since we're talking about places. Yeah, and that practice is found throughout the world across millennia, from the temples of ancient Greece and Rome, throughout India and China, as well as multiple shrines in the Islamic world, most famous of which is Mecca. Mm. And there's also, I think, destinations or uh, sacred places you can go that aren't destination or location-based. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the comedian Jack Black, uh, oh, I do know Jack, and I enjoy him greatly. Uh, he claims that he has experienced a rock and roll hajj uh, of sorts, which is when you listen to every Led Zeppelin album from beginning to end right in a row nonstop. Oh, that, I mean, that's going to take some time. It will take some time. 
Uh, so regardless of all this, there are actually four basic goals of hagiography, Tim. There are. Um, they're going to explain the relationship to the divine or the spiritual. Uh, they're going to make holiness visible in the world. Mm -hmm. And they're going to serve as an apology of the person. Now, when you say apology, you mean uh, the, a defense of the person, right? Not so like why this person was such a loser or buzzkill. Exactly. Right? Uh, you know, I've engaged in many apologies after a rough night of drinking, such as, uh, I'm sorry you said that. Uh, I didn't mean to flip <laughs> your car over. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, another another of the goals of hagiography is to, to depict the person as a role model mm -hmm. or as a source of instruction or spiritual guidance, mm. uh, to display the person's holiness, their aesthetic virtues, divine wisdom, and supernatural abilities. And uh, those supernatural abilities relate to some sort of cultural character archetype or something like that, um, similar to a saint, which is which you might consider a hero. Uh, something we might talk about in uh, one of our remaining episodes on uh, rhetoric and religion. Indeed. Heroes, heroines, hero worship, and myth. Mm -hmm. So these make it clear that hagiography is different from biography. Properly written, hagiography will inspire and energize a reader to imitate the subject of the work insofar as they love as the love of God is concerned. Holiness is not impossible to achieve. Mm. And despite its Christian or origins, as we mentioned earlier, uh, hagiography has greatly expanded. Uh, and so while they're primarily Christian uh, in nature, some argue that hagiography can be found in other religions as well. So Judaism, uh, they don't have saints in the Catholic sense, but there are hagiography-type documents and texts about the martyrs and confessors who testified to the truth of the Jewish religion throughout their lives. Uh, and in the Muslim, uh, Muslims, there's no equivalent to the saints per se, but also there are uh, hagiographies uh, that resemble uh, the ones in the Christian sense. Uh, and they address the uh, prophet Muhammad, his companions, his successors, uh, the Shia Imams, the Sufis, and, and, and others. And in contemporary popular culture, uh, we've got uh, movies and biopics of uh, people like Joan of Arc. Uh, we've got uh, Romero as a 1989 American biopic depicting the story of Salvador and Archbishop Oscar Romero. Yeah, not Cesar Romero. Uh, no, <laughs> his brother Oscar. Oscar. Uh, the two films suggest uh, how their titular saints think about God or how each perceives the Bible. And in addition, some scholars have applied this notion of hagiography to the biographies of historical or celebrated figures in our society. Uh, and in a sense, they transform these mere mortals into near gods with their sagas, their myths, and such. Uh, one such example that we found in the scholarship was about Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf, uh, who mm -hmm. led the uh, 1991 Gulf War and seemed to uh, make a quick work out of that. Uh, other biographies that might fall into this kind of understanding is George Washington's biography. Uh, a year or two or so after he died, there was the, uh, a biography that came out that told the apocryphal tale of him cutting down a cherry tree. You remember that one, Tim? I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, he cut down, uh, he got a shiny new axe. He cut down that cherry tree. His dad came home and his father said, did you cut down that tree? And George says, I cannot tell a lie. I did it. Now, Tim, you and I are we know that story is 100% made up. 
I, I believe it to be. But isn't it amazing that we teach our children the value of being honest by telling them a story about a lie that is a lie? That That is amazing. That tells you I everything think, you uh, need to know about politics. But anyway. Uh, pl- Plato uh, told us about the benefit of the, the grand lie or the great lie that, you know, there are certain people, uh, sort of not the leaders, uh, who need to be a total bit of fiction if you want to get them to behave the way you want them to behave. Mm, that's true. Uh, and so if we consider these uh, uh, leaders and historical figures as saints in a sense, I guess you could say I've actually, I have been to a, uh, a shrine of sorts, probably the biggest shrine in the United States, and that is Graceland. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've been there twice. Uh-huh. Anybody who puts shag carpeting on the walls <laughs> is is worthy of worship in my eyes. It, that might even constitute as a, a, a miracle. <laughs> a, that, that is a miracle. How it stayed up there for over 50 years or so. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they make a lot of money there. So speaking of money, uh, it might point back to some of the uh, economic incentives for hagiography. Uh, it affords uh, sort of a, an opportunity for people to uh, have a shrine to which large numbers of pilgrims will come, and uh, that could sort of uh, build up the local economy. That's true. All right, Tim, you ready for our take-home points? I am. Here's mine. Hagiography, is, it's more than a biography. It serves as a, uh, a guide to, to a living a better, more divine life, and that doesn't necessarily mean a religious life, uh, as more of the current examples kind of suggest. And so I would sum it all up by saying biography is to exposition as hagiography is to emulation. I love those analogies. Mm. It's like sweet honey wine. <laughs> all right. Is it time for challenges? Sure. You want to... Have you got one for me? Yeah, I got one for you. All right, Tim. So we talked about uh, how biographies of people can be considered a hagiography. And Tim, as you know very well, but our listeners may not, I am actually a saint myself that I paid you I, $5 for. I, I, I do know that you are St. David of Dewberry and that I, a, uh, an ordained minister in the Universal Life Church, uh, actually uh, canonized you. Yes. And so I am the, the uh, patron saint of quality footwear. Right? <laughs> Uh, and also of trout impersonators, right? Just like okay. just like Hermes can have a, a wide range of interests, uh, mm-hmm. you know, trout impersonating and uh, quality footwear. But anyway, Excellent. so my challenge is this. Tim, can a person, a saint, engage in self-hagiography? Oh, that is a good question because it would seem to somehow violate the rules mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of like um nominating yourself for an award um now have you been to that... have you been in an academics in a while that seems to be a <laughs> practice uh now let me think about that i su- i would suggest that there are probably some saints who uh contributed to their hagiographies. Mm-hmm. Now, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of these things are first documented after the saint uh, has been martyred. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's it's a little late for them to contribute it at that time. But some of these people are uh, sort of uh, fathers of the church. Some of these people are uh, authors of large volumes of religious writing. 
So I wouldn't be surprised if you could identify someone who was sainted uh, after their death, whose sainthood depends largely upon the actual writings of that saint. Hmm. I'll take that as a good yes, right? So self-hagiography is like an autobiography of sorts. Yeah, yeah. All right, what's my challenge, Tim? Now, it it turns out the challenge that I had for you, you have already answered. It was going to be... Which it's a museums, miracle, Tim. <laughs> which of the museums that you have visited is most like a shrine? And I think you identified that one as Graceland. Well, I, is that fair to call that a museum? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I guess you could call it a shrine. Uh, I will say, to give a slightly different answer, the most impressive place I have been of a quote-unquote religious thing. I mean, I would pick Graceland if I didn't say it already. Uh, I would say the grave of Doc Holliday. Oh, wow. Right? It's buried way deep in the Rocky Mountains Mm -hmm. uh, in a small little town, and he was buried in a pauper's grave, so it's very kind of old western-y, not well taken care of. Yeah. Uh, it's either that or the world's smallest wedding chapel, which is also in southwest <laughs> Missouri. It yeah. seats six, but I think you can fit seven or so comfortably yeah. in it. S- southwest Missouri seems to be just a, a treasure trove of uh, these uh, interesting roadside attractions. I have no idea. There's also the George yeah. Washington Carver National Muse- uh, National uh, Park. Oh, yeah. Uh, the man who worked his life on the peanut is from that area. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a wonderful place. We good? We're good. All right. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Looks like it's time for another historical tidbit. Uh, So I've got a historical anecdote here, and it has to do with a former saint known as St. Christopher, who uh, at some point was reduced to Mr. Christopher, at least that's what people thought. And so this was uh, rather disturbing to some of us, including to me, because when I was confirmed, I chose Christopher as my confirmation name. And so Christopher was the patron saint of sort of safe passage. Uh, Many faithful people had statues of St. Christopher uh, on the dashboard of their cars. They wore St. Christopher medals. But the reason why St. Christopher Uh, was questioned, and this uh, occurred in 1969, had to do with the account by which he was said to be a saint was that here in, I think, possibly uh, the third century, uh, he who made a living carrying people across the river uh, was carrying a little baby across the river, and the baby got heavier and heavier, and it turns out it's because the baby was Christ, and Christ had the weight of the world on his shoulders. So in 1969, when the church was looking at some of these things, do we actually have evidence of this miracle? That one came up a little short in terms of evidence, but it turns out he was not actually reduced to Mr. Christopher, but he is still St. Christopher, but uh, he is emphasized less because of the questionable veracity of his uh, miraculous event. This makes me kind of curious as to uh, what kind of documented evidence you need to prove that there was a miracle. Yeah, and so... Is there a um, rubric somewhere? 
Well, uh, it turns out there's a couple things. One is that uh, it, you needed three miracles to be done in the name of that saint. So say, for example, Saint Anne de Beaupre, uh, she is famous for having people go to her shrine and they're cured of various paralysis. Uh -huh. So they show up on crutches and suddenly they can walk and they leave the crutches behind. So uh, for, a, for a long time, uh, there was a minimum of three miracles testified by witness and then that qualified as uh, a saint. That sounds like in Texas, where if they have three credible witnesses against you, uh, they will mm -hmm. put you in the front of the line to the execution chamber. <laughs> I guess it's Texas a is a tough state. Yeah, it is a tough state. It's like a whole other country down there. Yeah. All right, Tim, who's sponsoring this episode? Okay, this episode is sponsored by Executive Accelerated Recovery. We've all heard about the 12-step programs to recover from addiction to alcohol, drugs, gambling, or even sex. But one thing all these programs have in common is that they take a good bit of time to actually work. Now, for busy executives like you, we're offering a full range of 10-step programs that achieve identical outcomes, but in less time, because they skip two steps. Sure, some people need 12 steps, but not you, because you are a winner. You can take the bull by the horns and charge into recovery at an accelerated pace because you've got moxie. So we can forget step one, where you admit you are powerless before some intoxicant. As an executive, you know damn well you are not powerless, and you've got real doubts about the existence of a power higher than you. The next step that we can eliminate is the one where you make amends. Step eight requires you to make a list of people you have harmed and be willing to apologize and right your wrongs. As a busy executive, you realize that anyone that you wronged deserved to be wronged, so therefore, we're gonna skip step eight. So that's Executive Accelerated Recovery, recovery in a mere 10 steps. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been rhetoric o -Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library.